Hey everybody, it's Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, your guide for navigating a safe pregnancy for mother and baby, which is a Penguin Random House publication that came out last summer. If you have questions and concerns about what's going on during pregnancy, prenatal care, labor and delivery, and what might be going on during the Initial weeks and months after you have your baby, go pick up the book. Probably everything you need is in there, and it's sold everywhere books are sold. So as you all know, it's back to school season. And as I mentioned last week, a lot of parents are incredibly relieved that they now have a free or at least relatively affordable, safe, and you know hopefully stimulating and nurturing place for their children to spend the day while they work. Summer is tough for working families when school isn't available to fill in the childcare blanks. Um, I had a conversation with one mom recently who has two kids, ages five and eight. You know, clearly you can't leave them home on their own while you go to work. You got to do something. Um, I think mom is a mortgage adjuster. And she said she works from like 8.30 in the morning till 5.30 at night. And dad is a butcher. And... um, he works full-time too, but during the summer, he can flex his hours a little bit to go in at 10 a.m., um, and that helps out with some of the daycare hours. They don't really have family nearby to help them out and to babysit you know, when they can't find somebody else to do it, but they pieced it all together through parks and recreation camps and classes and a few private day camps for you know, art and theater groups, that kind of thing. And they hired a local high school babysitter. And when they got to the end of the three months of summer and they added it all up, it came up to thousands of dollars that they spent for three months of summer care. And it was a whole lot more than they could afford. Now that school's back in session, they still have to scramble for after-school daycare, but at least there are more options. And there are more, you know, these options are, you know, they might be associated with the school or, you know, there's just more that they can do that is more affordable and less of a hassle. And uh, here's hoping everybody who's in that predicament can sort of heave a small sigh of relief. For those of you that haven't bridged the back to school gap yet, it's coming. You're lucky if you have friends and family that can help out. If not, it's going to be, you know, you're going to be prowling through the catalogs in February, too, to make sure that you've got safe, fun, and affordable places to plant your kids while you go do your job. It's also off-to-school season for a lot of women I know whose oldest children are going to college as freshmen. Um, For almost all of the moms I've spoken with about this recently, the it's brutal. It's just brutal. It's heartbreaking. Sure, they know they knew this day was coming from the beginning. They know their child is ready to leave and, you know, go out in the big big world and have new adventures. And sure, they had great times themselves in college and they know it's going to be fabulous. They know it's the right thing and the next step and the natural order of where they want their children to go. And still, this is brutal. It's heartbreaking to take this gorgeous child that you gave your blood, sweat, and tears to. You know, you you got them through the difficult adolescent and teenage years. You kept them alive when they were toddlers. And you finally raised them to be this, you know, reasonable semi-adult. And now you have to say, there you go, hon. You're done. On your way. Go. And you hand them over to, you know, the college system. For a lot of a lot of kids, they're not coming back home after that. That's your graduation as a parent. For a lot of us, they come on back, and that's the good news. But, you know, for too many parents, it's a little bit like getting fired from the best job you ever had or breaking up with the person you love most completely in the world. You know, of course, it's not really a breakup, and as any parent of adult children will tell you, you're a parent till the day you die. But still... College is the culmination and drop-off day is hard. My heart goes out to all of you who are doing that this week or this month. Um, I've done it a few times myself. I've had a few kids go off to college and 
Oh my God, I cried for days and weeks leading up to my oldest one going off to school. I cried for days and weeks afterwards, just recovering from it. I cried with the second one. I cried when my son moved out. I, you know, we do that. And then you get over it and now it's okay. And you all get back to the rhythm of life and it, you know, becomes your new normal. But I feel ya. I feel for ya. So all this chat about daycare and all that leads me to our guest this week, who's an expert in the laws and policies our states and our country have that make it easier or much, much harder to be a parent. Um, The National Partnership for Women and Children put out a report recently called Expecting Better. It's a comprehensive analysis to date of state laws and regulations that govern paid leave, paid sick days, um, protections for pregnant workers, and workplace rights for expecting new parents in the U.S. Um, And in this report, they grade all 50 states and uh, Washington, D.C., and they gave out a whole lot of Ds and Fs. So that's what I want to talk about. We've got some Bs and Cs, too, and one or two As. But let's get Sarah Fleischfink on the line to talk about that. Ring, ring. Hello. Hi, Sarah. It's Jeannie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So I'm catching you in Washington, D.C., aren't I? Yes. Yeah. And um, is it the end of summer and back to school? It is the end of summer, and for many here in D.C. and in neighboring Virginia and Maryland, it is the start of the school year, just about. Yeah, yeah. That's all anybody's talking about here, too. Yeah. So, Sarah, you have one of the names that is a little bit difficult for me to know. Is Fleisch, is it Fleisch or Fleisch? How do you say your name? Sarah Fleisch Fink. Got it. Okay. Um, I thank you for joining the conversation here, and... We've got stuff to that's downright serious to talk about today, but let me start by reading your official bio. Okay. Sarah Fleischfink is the Director of Workplace Policy and Senior Counsel at the National Partnership for Women and Families. Fink researches and analyzes key workplace policy priorities, including paid leave, paid sick days, fair pay, and pregnancy discrimination. So that's the official the official bio, but now I want to ask you, tell me more about who you are and what you do. That's a great, great way to start, and I'm happy to be on. Thanks for having me, um, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, as my official bio said, I am the Director of Workplace Policy and Senior Counsel at the National Partnership for Women and Families, um, where I have the privilege and the pleasure of doing um, lots of different types of policy work on issues that matter to women and to their families. Um, so I get to work with, uh, with advocates who are both you know, professional advocates, so to speak, and, and regular people all over the country who are interested in developing policies to address the things that they need in their lives. Um, so things like having pay leave after they have a child or when someone in their family is sick or having paid sick days so that they can take their child to the doctor or get their new baby vaccinated. Um, Or when uh, they are concerned about facing pregnancy discrimination in the workplace and talking about what public policies can do to address um, all of those different types of concerns that people feel like they're having on an individual basis, but that really are part of a bigger problem uh, that we try to help address here at the National Partnership uh, so that's that's me by day, um, and then I'm also the mother to two young kids, um, and that's me by day and night. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, you know work life balance or sort of the dual the dual work and family is is my life and it's also my work. Yeah, yeah, it's what we all do. I call it the scramble. <laughs> Some days it feels like that. Yeah, yeah, and and. We're doing about a 50-50 mix right now of women that I talk to who have school-age kids, uh, whether back to school is the best time of the year or the worst time of the year. Which camp are you in? Well, my kids are not of um, school age yet. Ah, they're uh, very young. 
They're very young, so I don't have, so to speak, a back to school. Uh, they're in the same day-to-day uh, -day situation, whether it's the traditional school year or the summer. Uh -huh. um, so the, I've yet to be hit by having a real meaning behind back to school. <laughs> um, that'll come comes before I know it, but, yeah, but yeah. not quite yet. Okay, that context is coming your way in a blink of an eye. <laughs> I, I hear, and then I also hear that once it does, everything just goes in fast-forward mode even more. Yeah, it does. But, you know, I've got older kids, and I look back on that time, and I think, boy, that went fast. But, yeah, that was about 16 years. That seems about right. So, you know, you get perspective on either end. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like we need to explain our topic today in layers. So I'd like it if you could start out with giving me a really good explanation of what the National Partnership for Women and Children is and does. So sure. So the National Partnership uh, for Women and Families is a 45-year-old nonprofit, nonpartisan advocacy organization. Uh, we were founded, as I said, 45 years ago. Um, as the Women's Legal Defense Fund, at the same time as several uh, women's legal defense funds were founded throughout the country. And we were founded at that time to, to do, and for a number of years we did, direct um, legal service um, providing in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, so working directly with, with women who um, were facing legal obstacles and who needed direct services from lawyers. And we did that work, um, or I should say my predecessors did that work for a number of years. Um, and then over time, our uh, first full-time, our first paid staff member, Judy Lichtman, who is now our senior advisor, um, and others realized that there was a real need for policy and advocacy work on behalf of women, and that that was a need that wasn't filled. And so... The Women's Legal Defense Fund over time became the National Partnership for Women and Families and went from being a provider of direct legal services to being a policy and advocacy organization. Uh, and we uh, led the fight and helped to pass several key pieces of federal legislation for workers and their families, including the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, um, which prohibits uh, discrimination on the basis of pregnancy. Um, the Family and Medical Leave Act, uh, or the FMLA, which provides unpaid job-protected time away from work uh, when one has a baby or has a serious medical condition or needs to care for a family member with such a condition. Um, and then most recently, we did significant work around the um, Affordable Care Act. Uh, and so that's our history, that's our legacy, and kind of where it takes us into today. And I could talk more about sort of what our work across program areas looks like now, if, if that's helpful. Well, you know what I'm really thinking about is 45 years ago, that's when when you guys started. So that was like 1971. What a really interesting time in history, you know? Do you know what like the first law case would have been that, that inspired it, inspired National Partnership? I don't know what the first direct service legal matter was that was handled by the then Women's Legal Defense Fund. It's a it's a fantastic question, and I it's sparking my curiosity. I don't know. Um, you know, but I know you can imagine. You know, like somebody who set this up was going through some shit. You know, it's the same kind of employment, maternity leave, pregnancy, motherhood, women in the workplace scramble that we've all been doing for so many decades. It's true, except obviously the situation and sort of the circumstances facing most women in the early 70s in many ways look vastly different than the, you know, the scramble that, that a lot of women are facing now in that in the early 70s, um, it was pretty unheard of for women to, um, or I should say, was, which was much less frequent for women to be deeply involved in the legal profession. Law school classes were nowhere near the 50-50 that they are now. Um, uh, you know, obviously the Pregnancy Discrimination Act hadn't been passed at that point because that was the first key piece of federal legislation that we worked on. Um, and so it was not illegal at that time to discriminate against a woman because you found out she was pregnant. Yeah. Um, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't illegal to fire somebody because you discovered she was pregnant. Um, and while, you know, 
part of my job and what it is is here because there's still so much work to be done. Yeah. Um, you know, we certainly have more legal protections in our in the workforce in in hugely greater numbers than we were once upon a time. Yeah. Yeah. I in 1971, I was 11, and um, I'm the youngest of eight kids, a Catholic mother who was. Uh, stay-at-home mom until my teenage years when she started to teach piano lessons. But I had four older sisters who were in their teens and 20s. And um, we had, so 71 is right about the time when, um, you know, National Organization for Women was really becoming active. And I remember right around that time, maybe not that year, that Ms. Magazine was on our coffee table along with... um, literature from the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart and stuff like that. It was a really interesting time yeah. in women's history and uh, learned a lot. And I'm, I don't know, you just, you sparked my mind on that one, on that date. So, yeah. So let's talk now about the report, Expecting Better. And you'll do better than me explaining what it is. Sure, I would love to. So Expecting Better is... Um, I should take a step back. So the National Partnership has released a report called Expecting Better um, now four times. So this most recent edition that came out uh, in early August is the fourth edition of our report called Expecting Better. And it is a state-by-state analysis of laws that can help expecting and new parents. Um, And so what we do is we catalog all of the laws across the country in every state in D.C. that help support expecting a new parents who um, who are also workers. So we're looking at employment laws and we start with the basis of what does federal law provide and then look at what laws in the states have done to improve upon what federal law already does, what our inadequate federal laws already do. And so we're talking about things like Paid leave, paid sick time, um, exact protection for pregnant workers, and and other workplace rights. I imagine breastfeeding. Yep, falls in there. Exactly. Yep, you've pretty much hit them all in the head. So okay. yes, paid paid family medical leave, paid sick days, pregnancy accommodations for workers who are pregnant and need a simple accommodation to keep working during pregnancy, nursing mothers accommodations, as well as um ways that some states have expanded on the FMLA to provide longer periods of time or time for more workers to take away from work that's job protected. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are all the categories of laws. Um, We write up summaries, and and you'll see this in the report, um, of of all the laws. And then we go through and have a methodology where we assign point values based on each law that a state has in effect. And then we essentially add up all the points for each state and assign grades to each state based on how supportive they are of expecting a new parents. Um, and we the the report includes a map showing the grades of each state. It includes a state by state report card listing the grades that each state has. Um, as I said, provides detailed summaries of laws for those who really want to dig in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then has a special section that talks not only about new parents, but about um, what the state of play is for family caregivers more broadly. Um, so I'm sure, you know, everyone who's listening understands the effect of um, being part of the sandwich generation, you know, caring for our parents and caring for our kids. And so that's what this special section gets into is, you know, what does that mean? And what are the laws, what are laws doing to help those, those people right now? Yeah, yeah. A lot of our listeners are probably that's still a few years off. But boy, oh boy, I went through it with both my parents. And that was tough. There weren't a lot of laws to, to help us out. Yeah. So let's go to the report card. So California got an A. Oregon, where I live, got a B. And 12 states got F's. What did Washington DC where you are? What did what did you guys get? DC got an A minus. An A minus. Huh. Okay. Let's talk about that. I, I I'm sound I'm saying huh like that because I know that in terms of maternal mortality and maternal health outcome, you know, like labor and delivery statistics coming out of DC, they're not so good. They don't get an A. Absolutely. So, so great point. And we have, um, 
We have other resources um, on the National Partnership website, including um, something we call the Family Friendly America Map that looks at some of the data points you're talking about, Mm -hmm. about, you know, what does life in that state look like for women, for children, for families. Um, This report, Expecting Better, only looks at the laws that are in place for expecting and new parents and grades the state on that basis. So it's not an evaluation of... um, you know, uh, how much kids or parents are necessarily thriving. Um, it's more about what are protections are in place that over time hopefully will improve things like what you're discussing. Yeah, it's a piece um, of the puzzle. It's, an, it's, it's an a piece imp- of the puzzle, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so many of these pieces of the puzzle, um, you know, when you put them all together, you're looking at issues like poverty, gender inequities, um, you know, all kinds of issues that deeply impact women. Right. So, you know, the beginning of Expecting Better really digs into some of those those things that you're talking about, really digs into what we know about how these policies and putting them in place can help um, children and families to thrive and to, to improve their situations, um, both in terms of, you know, their, their personal family economic security, um, how having policies in place can help communities to thrive more, businesses to thrive, um, and really to overall help the national economy by keeping people, um, especially women, um, in their jobs and in the workforce. Um, and the effect that that has when so many women are also working and are also breadwinners today. Mm-hmm. Uh, now- and that they're in your in you also just to say, you know, in the gender equity piece, that's a big part of it, both, you know, for us at the National Partnership for Women and Families and our legacy of the work that we've done over 45 years, we look toward all of these policies as being part of um, the story about how you achieve gender equity. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have, um, if you don't have paid family medical leave laws in place and you don't have some of these other policies in place, um, you know, it, it hinders gender equity in, in real ways um, where women have to make choices or sometimes, you know, aren't in a position to even make a real choice about staying in the workforce and continuing to advance and to thrive or needing to leave the workforce to handle, um, you know, to, to give birth to a child, for example, or to address one of these other uh, major life events. Yeah. Um, I know that I am going to get emails from people who say things like, if you can't afford your own maternity leave, you shouldn't be having a kid. Or if you haven't budgeted for childcare, you shouldn't be having a kid. As if having children is this elite financial privilege that, you know, we don't, the implication is we don't need laws to govern this because if you can't afford it or you don't have the resources, you shouldn't be doing it anyways. Yep. You probably will. Mm-hmm. Um, that, oh, that, I will. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, unfortunately, um, uh, I've heard similar. Um, I, be- I bet you have. <laughs> and you know, in some ways it feels like it doesn't even deserve a response and that, you know, people have been having children for since forever. Right. And, um, to say certain parts of the population or people below a certain income or, or wage level simply shouldn't have kids because our public policies don't um, make it feasible. Um, you know, I, it, it leaves me sort of, um, I'm not sure that there's a really uh, logical response to that because I don't think it's a logical argument. It's a jaw, um, it's a jaw dropper, I call it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the you know, and at the same time, you know, I I have to point out to people who say things like that that we are in a time in which we're not just talking about a small segment of the population that needs these policies in order to um, have a child and stay afloat. We're talking about pretty large segments of the population. I'm sure many of your listeners are are in this boat who feel like they make decent wages, they have decent jobs, um, they have saved, and it's still feeling impossible to raise a child. Right. Um, And, you know, unless we're going to say that only people in the top, you know, 1% or or 10% or whatever it may be should be giving birth, um, you know, these are problems in need of solutions for that, and, it, and that's pretty universally felt, I would say. Yeah. Um, certainly lower income come women and their families are feeling this um, a million fold. Uh, but, you know, people in the middle class or, you know, what we used to consider the middle class or even upper middle class are not 
certainly are not out there feeling secure and raising their families and paying for daycare and trying to save for retirement and college and, um, you know, being able to take off a few weeks to hopefully months to care for a new baby. Right, right. Nobody is immune from this, this issue. So California got an A. Um, what do you have to do to get an A? California got an A and California got an A. And if you read the report a bit closely, you'll see California got an A with a bit of a caveat in that California, even California hasn't done everything it possibly could for expecting a new parents, but it's certainly done the most of any of the states. Um, so California has a paid family and medical leave program in place. It has, um, it has job protection. It has, uh, uh, pregnancy disability law, uh, I'm sorry, job protection for medical leave for pregnancy disability. It has paid sick days now. Uh, it has rights for nursing mothers who return to work and pregnancy accommodations. So essentially, as you and I ticked off the categories of laws that we looked at, it has a robust law in each of those categories. Um, as I said, there is um, there is room for improvement still in California in terms of providing for um, for more job protection in particular, or perhaps for a greater number of paid sick days than their current laws provide. Um, but there's no other state or the District of Columbia that has a robust law in every category for private sector workers. Go California. I had two of my babies in California, and then I had two in Oregon. And okay. in, in California, and, and the California babies are in their you know mid to late 20s now, so it was a while back. But even then, I was able to tap into medical dis disability payments for my maternity leave. And right. um, it, it was still difficult, but it made it more possible. And then, you know, I moved to Oregon and had two babies. And we don't do that here. You're on your own. I mean, you can use, I was working as a nurse, so I was able to use, you know, paid time off for a certain period of time. And then I was able to just take time off without pay for a certain period of time. But you know, the, the contrast, the financial contrast and the contrast to our family security was pretty harsh. Right, so your case in point, I mean, since, since then, California has also put in place paid family leave. And they've, they've added that to what you're talking about, which was the paid medical leave part of the program that you were able to tap into. Um, so that, yeah, workers, when they are pregnant and face a disability or when they're recovering from childbirth or when they have a new baby, get some wage replacement when they're out of work. Um, and as you said, it didn't make it easy because, you know, even partial wage replacement for most people um, means you, you um, have some burden. Uh, but it makes it a lot more possible than if you had zero wage replacement while you're out of work for those reasons. And that contrast, as you said, Oregon or, or any other state, except for, you know, the very few that have this, like California, New Jersey and Rhode Island, um, and soon to be New York, um, is, is real. It's a real contrast. It means, you know, less money to no money in your pocket when you mm -hmm. are out of work for reasons that, that really require it. And then... You know, say you can't afford to take six to 12 weeks off um, because you don't have the income, but then you're in that situation where, okay, now I have to go back to work and now I have to pay somebody to take care of my child. So it's a, you know, it, it it's a financially dangerous proposition no matter what women do. Right. I mean, you, you know, you're out of work for a number of weeks to at least recover from childbirth, hopefully, if you can even afford that. I mean, studies show that many women return to work within two weeks of giving birth. Right. Um, there's people who have no paid time off, no paid sick days, you know, no paid leave who simply can't afford to be out of work for even a few days. Right. Um, and there's stories about these women who are giving birth and back to work within a, within a few days, if not less, who don't even have the day that they're in the hospital giving birth off. Right. Um, and protected. So and then, yes, those same women, as soon as they need to return to work, are having to figure out where to turn to for child care. Um, and often that means that not only are they in a situation where they can't afford child care, but they're not finding quality child care arrangements because so many daycares um, can't even take take care of babies under a certain number of weeks. Um, you know, so it's not even a situation of this is hard. It's a situation of 
this is impossible. This is impossible. To have quality, affordable childcare, or even honestly, quality childcare. Yeah. Um, so they're scrambling, you know, to find a neighbor, a parent, a friend who can, who can help out for a day here or a few hours there, which means, you know, oftentimes you're late to work because something falls through or you, um, you know, miss a shift. And, and then quickly that often, unfortunately means for people that they're losing their jobs that they've been fighting to keep. Right. Um, so the downward spiral that spiral that comes from not having policies in place to address what are universal issues right now, what are no longer, you know, this is my problem and I need to, you know, pull myself up and face it, um, is, is detrimental to, to those women, to their, to their babies, to their future children and to these communities. Right. And to Um, the, and to the workforce at large. Exactly. Women make up 48% of the workforce. Right. To the workforce at large and you know, and, and I say to some people who, um, you know, who might not quite yet be on the same page as I am, you also then have to at least think about the economic conditions for your for your community and for your business community. I mean, if people are losing their jobs and uh, can't can't stay in the workforce, they don't have money in their pockets, they're not spending at local businesses, they're not thriving. Um, you know, everything becomes unstable as a result. And, and as more and more women are in the workforce and playing a role as a breadwinner, um, this is just going to have increasingly detrimental effects, ripple effects across all of the areas that we're talking about. So 12 states got Fs. And, 12 states got Fs. Yeah. And looking at the map, um, and we'll, we'll make sure that we put up the, you know, the link to the website so people can look at the map. Um, many of the states don't surprise me. They're the same states that have the highest teen pregnancy rates, the highest unemployment rates, the highest maternal mortality and poor maternal health outcome rates. They're the states where it's hard to be a parent. And many of them are in the deep south. Some of them are in um, very, very conservative states. Right. Yeah. What do you- yeah. So the Fs, yeah, I mean, the, the Fs are just, just kind of to remind people, the Fs are, are states that have done nothing beyond what federal law provides. Um, and so they are all states that receive zeros in our, in our scoring. And, and what you say about them is right. And, you know, there's a few things that, a few reactions I have to that. One is, you know, it's interesting when you say that they, they appear to be largely conservative states. Um, you know, we often hear talk about family values and, you know, what it means to be family and the importance of that. And, you know, it really makes me think when people who espouse family values do not um, support some of these types of policies that we're talking about, what that means, right? Like, I think it's a family value to enable a woman to give birth to a child without losing her job and that it's a family value to make sure that a two-week-old baby can be in a stable um quality childcare arrangement. Um, and, and that's what these policies enable. Uh, and so, so that's one reaction to sort of your observation about the F states. Another is that, that when I look at, at the list of F states and, and even, you know, beyond that at the D range states of which there are 15 more in the D range. So 27 total states got D's or F's, which is obviously over half. Um, that takes me to, to, to what we work so hard on at the National Partnership, which is moving toward um, national federal policy solutions to these problems, because we have piecemeal efforts at the state level and piecemeal policy protections in place. And while it's fantastic that California and DC and New York and other states have done um, a decent amount for new and expecting parents, there's so many states that have done nothing. And the real way to make sure that a woman in Alabama or Missouri or Oklahoma is going to have the same abilities and protections and rights as one in California or Rhode Island or Oregon is to have a national policy standard that sets a floor for all of these people, um, regardless of what state you happen to live in. And set the floor a little higher than we're used to. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, the floor currently, obviously, we think is inadequate, which is the whole basis for this report. The floor now is the FMLA, and while it's been incredibly significant, and over 2 million people, um, 200 million people have taken um, time off of work for important needs because of the FMLA, 
most people can't afford to take unpaid time away from work. Um, and while the Pregnancy Discrimination Act made it illegal to fire a woman for being pregnant, um, women are still facing other forms of pregnancy discrimination that we need to address. And so we need to be moving forward um, new public policy standards to address the fact that our workforce is different than it was in the 70s or in the 90s. Like what? Like what kind of pregnancy discriminations are you talking about? So uh, we've currently seen um, a movement across the country um, in passing pregnant what we call pregnancy accommodations laws. And these are laws that require employers to um, provide or to, to, um, to agree to give pregnant workers who need them uh, reasonable workplace accommodations. So what I'm talking about in, in regular terms is if I'm pregnant and my, um, my doctor, my midwife says, you shouldn't be lifting more than 20 pounds. This kind of law would require an employer to um, to allow me to do light duty if that's an option or to take on different job responsibilities for a period of time. Obviously, by definition, pregnancy is temporary. Um, it also could be that um, it's recommended that I need to have access to a water bottle so I stay hydrated or to a stool so I'm not standing all day long at a cash register. And these laws say to employers, you have to provide pregnant workers who need them with these kinds of simple, reasonable workplace accommodations so that they don't have to um, give up their job to guarantee or to protect their health or the health of their pregnancy. So quite a while back, I did a podcast episode with um, Jessica Shortall, who wrote the book Work Pump Repeat about, it's both a a survey of um breastfeeding accommodations and laws that are in place for working mothers, um, along with tips for how to make it work. But, you know, we talked at that time that obviously we need policies and laws to protect women, but so often they end up protecting women who, um, or maybe I should say they're not protecting a lot of women. Like, the waitress who can't sit down on the job because then she can't get to her tables or, you know, the factory worker who can't take a breastfeeding break because there is no place. You know, I know it. we, we have to have the laws in place. That's the starting point. But how do we get to the next point where we really can accommodate a huge swath of our economic culture? Right. So I think, you know, it's a couple of things. Um, having in place the, the laws that we need is sort of is step one and it's a big step. Um, and having those laws um, be um, having those laws not sort of represent or address the problems that are facing workers across different kinds of industries and occupations is part of that. So, for example, as your breastfeeding example, um, the Expecting Better report looks at what states have done to go beyond what the federal nursing accommodations law says in terms of providing, um, you know, space and time um, for for pumping and to more workers. And so that's a start, right? To having it be expanded to allow um, workers who aren't already covered to have access to the right. But then the other piece you're talking about is is all of the implementation and enforcement of actually changing the workplace um, and having employers abide by the laws and having workers know what their rights are so that they can advocate for themselves and if their rights aren't being followed to seek enforcement of those laws. Um, there's also another component which is sort of, um, you know, is definitely a biggie, which is changing the culture around all of these issues in our workplaces from our you know, corporate workplaces to our factories to our restaurants and everywhere um, and, and sort of everywhere around and in between. Um, and, th and that's, a, that, those are a lot, that's a culture shift. Yeah. And I think some of that is underway in some segments. It's certainly we're not far along enough. Um, but I think the culture shift and the, and the change in the policy or the, the legal landscape go hand in hand and, and assist each other along the way. I think that we are seeing a national culture shift in what we mean by family values. You know, we're, see yeah. we're seeing a different representation of what it means to be family 
And I think that we're seeing um, more rapid progress in large urban areas, but we're seeing it. We're seeing it across the country slowly, too slowly, but we're getting there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, looking at it kind of over the span of, you know, just the time period where I've been raising my kids and, and the, the two states that I've had babies in, I'm comparing it to my oldest girl had a baby last year in California. And it seems to me that she is scrambling for the daycare time off affordability, income, piecing it all together factor. She's scrambling as hard as I did um, when I had my kids. They were babies. And do you think that, do you think that we're making progress? Do you think that there's a big difference? It seems to me like it's hard for everybody then. It was hard for everybody now. It's hard. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think in some ways we are making progress in that I think that we have increasingly seen, even in the past several years, um, a change or an improvement in um, in the conversations around these issues, in the attention and the light that is shed on some of these issues about um, about you know women and workforce participation and childcare and costs and family economic security. So I, I, I'd like to think and I do think that there is a shift and an improvement in dialogue um, and in attention. And I think perhaps some of that is attributed to um, this generation or sort of, you know, my generation, so to speak, or current parents perhaps are being more transparent and talking about the problems that they face and that they aren't seen as much as... Um, you know, this is my problem and woe is me because I can't figure it out all by myself. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's helping to to at least shed light. Um, what hasn't changed and I think why you say that your daughter isn't seemingly having a much easier time than you did um, dealing with all of the things that face a new parent is because our laws have not really changed very right. much. Right. Um, and so going back to the fact that you know, well, I know it's weedy and wonky and and all of that. Policies matter and they change things. And so, you know, if if our laws have not changed in if, the, you know, the FMLA just had its 23rd anniversary. So we have not changed work family policy nationwide in this country in 23 years. Um, that that means that we have, you know, not changed the daily lives of many people in 23 years unless they happen to work for a good boss who gives them good benefits. Right. Um, and, you know, and so until we do change the, some of the things around childcare and around paid leave and around all of the other pieces that help um, a parent not feel as, um, as pulled in a million different directions, I don't know that we'll really see drastic change. Um, and, and that's why we do here at the National Partnership what we do. So, you know, if we use broad generalizations, what do you want people to do to change, you know, C, D, and F policies? And I'm thinking, you know, state level, certainly, national level, certainly, workforce level, too, and maybe even on an individual level. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think I'll say first, because I think that I don't often say it enough, because I am a policy person and a lawyer and so focused on that, that there that the importance of continuing the conversations and shedding light on the problems is part of part of change. Um, and so I, I encourage people to continue to to do that, right, to be to telling their stories and to being part of the conversations around the problems that they're facing in their lives and why there is a need for policy change. Um, and then with my policy hat on more fully, I think that there's so much that people can do at the state and local levels to change policy in their own communities. Um, there are campaigns at work in many states um, that we're involved with, that we have um, contacts at, on policies like paid sick days and paid leave and pregnancy accommodations and in passing those at the state level or even at the local level. Um, and, and that would lead to real change um, 
for people in those states and those communities. And so I, I really do encourage people to think about how they can be involved. And I know it's not everybody's uh, favorite thing to, um, you know, to go door to door, to, to do various things. But even telling your story can be hugely impactful in a local or statewide campaign because typically our elected leaders respond most to understanding what problems people are facing um, that they represent. Uh, and at the federal level, uh, we are working toward a federal paid family and medical leave bill called the Family and Medical Insurance Leave Act or the Family Act. There's a paid sick days federal proposal called the Healthy Families Act. There's um, a pregnant workers accommodations proposal called the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. And, and we um, are involved in coalitions working to push those bills forward and are always encouraging um, advocates and voices and people across the country to be part of that work. Um, and you can learn more on our website, um, nationalpartnership.org. Um, and and I, you know, I can't say enough how important activism is from especially, you know, from mothers and from, from dads and from people who are experiencing these issues that we talk about from a policy perspective in their daily lives every day. Yeah. So vote, 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 vote. vote. And that. Yeah, there's that. And, you know, for, I think that, that Jessica Shortall said, she pointed it out to me that if you are a business owner and you have women who work for you, who are valued employees. Make it possible for them to have children too, because it's better for you to keep an employee than to train somebody up. And, you know, once you establish policies that benefit women and families, you're going to keep those employees for life. Right. I think that, you know, business leaders are the best, um, are the best spokespeople for all of that. And there are many, especially, you know, in, in the states that I've talked about and I've raised up, like, you know, in California and Rhode Island and New Jersey, where they have paid family medical leave, there's businesses who say, you know, this has been a, a net plus for us because we're able to seep the rewards of, you know, increased productivity and morale and retention um, uh, through these programs. Yeah. Um, and 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 there is a return on that for businesses, not to mention that, it, you know, it's the right thing to do right. and it helps their bottom line. Um, and in terms of loyalty, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's why so often, you know, we actually hear small businesses who want these policies in place because they want to be able to offer all of these things that some of the bigger businesses can um, because they want to be able to compete. So. Um, yes, you know, I talked a lot about the, the policies in the national, the state and the local in the individual workplace. There's obviously lots of things that business owners can do to improve their own work sites and to be spokespeople for the need for these policies in their communities. Um, and for individual workers to educate themselves on what rights they already have in their state, um, through expecting better, you know, see, maybe there's, there might be protections that people aren't even aware of. And that's a great starting place. Yeah. Yeah. And on an individual level, you know, employees can be the ones who help educate their their employers. I got to believe that most bosses want to do the right thing for their employees. Yeah. So what else do you want listeners to know? That's a great question. We've covered a lot. We um, have. We have. <laughs> um, you know, I think that, that the, the sort of... Um, the purpose behind this Expecting Better report, and in some ways the purpose behind a lot of what the National Partnership does on these workplace issues, um, is to is kind of to go through what I was saying about educating people about what rights that they have so that they can be advocates for themselves and their work sites. And so I encourage that. Um, and, and to get involved, to see what the gaps are, see what other places have done, to see that it's possible, and then get out there and advocate for it and make your case. Um, you know, there's nothing more powerful than um, people's individual experiences and stories. And we so often see how quickly minds are changed by really understanding um, what individual people are going through. And so I, I encourage people to, um, to tell their stories and to share their experiences. I think lastly, I would say, um, you know, I, I, I keep coming back when I have conversations both with other policy people as well as with advocates who are working on the ground and with people sharing their stories that for so long, some, a lot of the issues that you and I are talking about today around, um, paid leave and, and, um, and childcare and paid sick days and pregnancy accommodations is that for so long people 
have thought about these problems as as individual. Um, my problem, it's my fault that I can't afford time away from work, or it's my fault I didn't save for childcare. It's you know, there's there's a lot of blame and shaming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of of people themselves, and honestly, of parents. We're in, a, you know, some would say a unique time of parent shaming yeah. and parent blaming, and um, to try to move past that and see that this report really shows so many people are in the same boat without policies that are needed to help them, um, you know, do life essentially, right. and um, to be able to move past that individual blame and shame, really, I think, frees people up to advocate. For policy changes. And, and that's where we need to be. Absolutely. You know, when, when people will start with the idea or the comment or the email to me, shouldn't have had them if you couldn't afford them? We're, we all need to be responsible for educating those people that, yeah, that's just not the case. Yeah. So my final question that I ask everybody is, where are you in your life as a mom? Or where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? Well, that's a that's a big question. Um, I know, right? <laughs> where am I? That, I feel like that takes thought, so I'll have to give it off the cuff. Where am I in my life? Um, literally, I am um, with two young kids who I am fortunate have a, a quality daycare arrangement. Um, and we um, are in what I think most people are who have two kids under let's see, well, I guess I can't say that, two kids under five now, um, uh, life is busy and full, um, and, uh, you know, feeling that um, I'm fortunate that it, that we've found a way for everything to fit into place for the time being, right, and yeah. taking kind of one day at a time with that, and uh, recognizing that little kids make life very interesting, don't they? Um, and, and some days, some days wonderful and then fun and then some days stressful and crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's, I guess that's what I, at the end of the day, I feel extremely fortunate that I am in a job position where I get to advocate for the things that I am seeing in my own and in my friends and in my, um, peers daily lives. Um, and that overlap makes it not feel like a push and pull between quote unquote work and family, but like I'm really able to do both um, most of the time. Yeah, uh, you're, you're not balancing, so, you're integrating. There you go. That's a great way of saying it. I'm 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 integrating, and and so yeah, I, you know, to kind of where am I in my life as a mother? I'm I'm doing okay right now. Like we're you know we're we're doing good, and um, and feeling like I said very fortunate. Well, good. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much for coming on the podcast today. This is an important conversation, and I'm hoping that people are going to take this information and share it. And, um, you know, we'll we'll spark some other conversations. So thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. guest was Sarah Fleischfink, Director of Workplace Policy and Senior Counsel at the National Partnership for Women and Families. You can learn more about their work and download the report, Expecting Better, at nationalpartnership.org. You can learn more about me and my work at jeanfaulkner.com. You can tweet me at jeanfaulkner, email me your questions, jean at jeanfaulkner.com, And buy the darn book, Common Sense Pregnancy, wherever books are sold. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. Join us again next week and we'll keep this conversation going. Bye, everybody. Bye.